Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for this good day that we get to gather together and worship your name and um, in the presence of one another, in the presence of your spirit, um, and also, Lord, in the presence of um, the redeemed of all ages who right now before your throne sing praise to your name. Lord, help us, um, help us to see the world through the eyes of your word, that we might know um, the type of thing that we're doing this morning. God, I pray for a special grace today as we do something a little different um, with, our, with our time in your word and, uh, and in this sermon. I just ask, Lord, that you would give great grace and clarity and um, that you would help us to, uh, to think biblically about, uh, about all things, but especially about what we're going to talk about today. And so would you give us great grace today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, so I need, Eli, would you help me? Um, grab a buddy. There are some sermon notes right here and some pens. You're going to need this sheet of paper because I'm going to give you some definitions and um, some things to consider. So while Eli is passing that out, let me explain what we're going to do. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that through, um, in my study of God's Word, that my position on infant baptism, on baptism uh, itself, has, has changed a bit. And um, it's the first doctrinal shift I've ever had as, uh, as your pastor for 13 years. And so, um, being that my conviction has changed, I, um, I talked to the elders uh, last week and asked, hey, would it be appropriate for me to baptize Lydia, which is strange, being that we are in name of a Baptist church, right? And so, I felt like I needed to give some account for... Um, for my, my position change. And so that's what I want to do today is to give an account for why I now believe that uh, infant baptism is not just permissible, but it's the way that we ought to be um, interacting with our kids in the church. Now, let me explain. Originally, what I wanted to do was explain it to you, and then I wanted to baptize her today. And um, on Wednesday, Wednesday morning at about 4 o'clock, I... Uh, I realized that was not fair to you because this is an idea that uh, it was something like seven or eight years ago is the first time I ever uh, I ever saw someone who loves the Word of God uh, give a defense for infant baptism. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. And it, it was John Calvin. And I remember looking at it and saying, man, I wish that were true. I just can't see it in the scripture. I, I think it's beautiful what he's saying, but I think he's wrong. And so this is something that, uh, that I've, been, uh, I've had the ability to think about for a number of years. And only just recently did the Lord uh, help me to see in his, uh, in his word these things. And so it would be um, very unfair to you if I were to teach on it today and then say, now participate as I baptize Lydia. It would just not be fair. So what I would like to do, this is why I've given you some, uh, some sermon notes so that you can take notes. I would like to talk you through this view and ask you to spend this week thinking about it in, in your house, like to, to see whether or not you would be able to, um, to yes and amen when, um, when we baptize Lydia next week. By the way, if not, that's okay. This is something that has divided 
uh, Christian from Christian in terms of denominations, but it's not something that necessarily must. So if you get to the end of this week having, uh, having heard my argument for today and you say, you know, Lord bless you, but I, I disagree, please come anyway um, and, uh, and watch, okay, next week. All right, so a couple of definitions to start with. Uh, and I'm going to give you some fill in the blank just so you can uh, so you can have these things at home. So that first blank is pedo baptism, right in there. Pedo baptism, P-E-D-O baptism. I never know how to spell baptism or resurrection. You guys can make fun of me if you need to, um, and you should. That's that's maybe proof that you shouldn't listen to me. Uh, oh, I, I should say that as well on the on the um, point of not listening to me. Um, at the end of today, if uh, what I want from you is to not believe me, but to believe God's word. So if I say something that is not in accordance with the word of God, do not believe me. Okay? Please, don't follow me into error. If you think, man, I see what you're saying, but you're just wrong. I don't see that in the word. Don't believe it. Um, because as your pastor, uh, I'm going to have to give an account to Jesus Christ. I really believe this is the case that I will have to give an account for the things that I teach, for the way that I lead, and so um, if you follow me into error, he's going to hold me accountable, so don't do that. Um, believe the word or don't, okay? Okay, so first blank is pedo-baptism. This is the conviction that children of a believing parent or parents are to be understood as participants in the new covenant. As members of the visible church. So participants is the second second blank. And visible church is the third. So think about this. We all understand this idea that when, we, when we're called to worship, uh, you can with physical eyes see people gathering and singing. But at the same time, there's what's known as the invisible church. That there are people who, have, who gather Sunday after Sunday who have never trusted in Christ, have never been born again. And so they are, while they're participants in the visible church, they are not participants in the invisible church. And so this is a careful distinction that pedo-baptism is a conviction that children of believing parents are to be understood as participants in the new covenant as members of the visible church. Okay? Members of the visible church. Now, the second, uh, the second blank you've got there. Credo baptism. Pedo means child or infant baptism. Credo, C-R-E-D-O, baptism. Uh, credo means I believe. So it's baptism that's based on, uh, on a profession of faith. So this is the conviction that only believers are to be baptized upon profession of personal faith in Christ. And so this view says somebody like Lydia as an example, we'll just use her as an example all day because uh, that's, uh, she's a good example of these things. That children of believers have no special place in the covenant community. They're, they're, they're no different than somebody who's born to unbelievers because they haven't heard the gospel and believed. And so that's the, that's the view of credo-baptism. The, um, the third blank you've got there is repi-baptism. And I just made this up to describe what's going on in our nation today and uh, particularly in the Southern Baptist Church. This is a conviction that one ought to be baptized every time you have a religious experience. And this is true. The average Southern Baptist person is baptized almost three times in their life. Which means 
that we need to do a lot of work in talking about and thinking about what baptism is. Because there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But for whatever reason in the church now, our understanding of baptism is that if you have any significant religious experience, it's time to be baptized. I was talking to a guy the other day that was said he was going to be baptized. I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. I, I would love to go, but I'm preaching that day. So um, he goes, yeah, well, it's okay. He was like, you know, we're going to, me and my wife are going to be baptized. And this is her first time to be baptized. So she doesn't really understand that this is my fifth time to be baptized. And I really get it now. And I'm like, no, brother, you don't. If you've been baptized five times, you do not understand what baptism is. Okay? So that's refuge baptism kind of a joke. Okay. So you've got an objection there. Do you see where I've written an objection? This is the strongest objection to the view of pedo baptism. So I'm going to tell you the objection, and then I'm going to answer the objection. First off, objection. That the New Testament never records an infant baptism. Fill that blank in. The New Testament never records an infant baptism. And that should be game over, right? If that's true. And it is true. So listen to me. I believe in, in infant baptism. Even though the New Testament never describes an infant being baptized. And you ought to say, how in the cotton pick can you believe that if it's not in the New Testament? So here's the, that's the objection. And it is true. New Testament never records it. But the answer to that objection is that the New Testament never records a second generation baptism either. Okay? Every time in the New Testament you see the gospel being shared, people hearing, believing, and being baptized, that is what's known as first generation believers. Somebody who just became a believer, they're being baptized. And good on them, that's the way things continue to go today. If you're an unbeliever and you hear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, lived perfectly according to the law, died to pay for your sin and rose from the dead, and that he will give you salvation as a free gift to be believed upon by faith alone, and you believe it, you're now a new convert and you ought to be baptized. Okay? This is, this is biblical. The question is, what should you then do with children who are born into your family? Should you view them as just reprobate people that are on the outside and hopefully one day when they grow up, they will hear and believe? Or should you raise them in the covenant, in the new covenant? Now, so let me say, both positions reason from related scripture. So neither side has chapter and verse. So if you're a credo-baptist, you do not have chapter and verse to say, see, this is how believing children uh, interact with baptism with their, uh, how believing people interact with baptism with their children. No, the, the, the New Testament is silent. And so we both, both sides have to reason from clear biblical uh, texts that are related to baptism. Okay, so three kind of... Um, Questions that we need to ponder, and then, uh, so this is this is the, the layout of my thoughts on this. We're, uh, there's three questions that, that we ought to ponder, and then there's three things that I want to speak to. The text of Scripture that would indicate these things are so. Patterns in the Scripture, and then practices. Okay, so first, underneath some questions we ought to consider. What is the relationship between the Old and New Testaments? This is the most important thing that concerns uh, baptism, your view of paedo-baptism or credo-baptism, um, is how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? 
So for time out of mind, if anybody were to ask me, hey, are we supposed to keep, what parts of the Old Testament are we supposed to keep? I would have answered that you're only supposed to keep the parts of the Old Testament that are repeated in the New Testament. Have you ever heard this, this, this idea of like, okay, so, so Jesus came, he set us free from the law, and now we're in the New Covenant. So the question is, what do we keep from the Old Testament? We would say any, any commands that the apostles say, uh, speak of as binding on the church. That would be, uh, that's going to land you in a credo, uh, in a believer's baptism uh, camp. But I don't think that's an accurate way to view the relationship between the Old and New Testament. Much better to understand that we are to keep whatever parts of the Old Testament that are not expressly revoked in the New Testament. You see the difference? One is, it's, there's this idea of a clean break, like the Old Testament has gone away, and the only thing we carry over into the New, we're kind of starting afresh, the only thing we carry over is anything that the apostles carry over for us. Vastly different is the view that says no. It is, we're continuing from the Old Testament. This is one story of redemption, and only those things that Jesus or the apostles say, this is no longer binding on us, are the things that we take away. Everything else remains. So... A good way to think about this is like if you have a son, uh, like I have a son, and, and so your job, Eli, is to take out the trash. This is your job. And so he's faithful to that, and he takes out the trash. And then one day I say, now I want you to mow the yard. And so he goes, and he starts mowing the yard, and that becomes his chore. And one day Gracie comes and says, look, there's like nine days worth of trash piled in the kitchen. What's going on? And Eli says, well... I was supposed to take out the trash then, but when you gave me a new command, I just quit doing that one and I did the yard. Well, no, that would be a, a failure of sonship. If I say you no longer have to do this, now start doing this, well, that's one thing. But if I, he has this command and I give another command, he's to keep them both. So the relationship between the Old and New Testament is one of the most important things. Think about all of, the, all of the things that are commanded of God's people in the Old Testament. Are we supposed to just have a clean break and, and build something new in the New Testament? Or is there continuity there? That's first. And we'll talk about these things from the text of Scripture. But that's maybe the most important question that you would need to ask yourself. Secondly, how would the first converts have understood baptism? Think about this now. Everybody that you read about in the book of Acts is either a Jewish person, a faithful Jewish person, uh, like somebody who really does take, uh, take God's word as the authoritative word of God, and they're orienting their life that way. So you have faithful Jewish people or um, Gentile converts to Judaism called, called God-fearers. How would those people have understood baptism when they, when they heard of the work of Christ and were commanded to be baptized, would they have, after millennia of extending the sign of the covenant, circumcision in the Old Testament, extending that to infants, to their, every baby that was born, every male child was circumcised, would they have then immediately uh, scrapped that practice, or would they continue that practice of putting their children under the sign of the covenant? This is really interesting. I heard two really fantastic men, godly men, who disagree on this issue. Uh, if you've ever heard of John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, they debated each other. And, um, and R.C. Sproul made a really interesting point there where he said, 
the, uh, uh, well, MacArthur said the only, the first time we hear about infant baptism is two or three hundred years after the apostles. It's like it wasn't a thing in the early church. And then when, when R.C. Sproul had his say, he said, yes, that's true. But when you hear the very first extant mention of infant baptism is described as this is the common practice in all the church. And it has been since the apostles time. And so the idea is uh, that those original uh, first, first generation believers in the book of Acts, any, any child born to them, that they would have done the same thing that the Jewish people had been doing for all of their kids, for all of the centuries, and that's to put them under the sign of the covenant. So that doesn't prove anything. It just suggests that it's not something that they just created out of thin air, which is typically the, the, um, the thought uh, against paedobaptism. Thirdly, are there any New Testament promises, commands, or indicatives that lead believers to expect that the covenant would include their children? I just want you to think about that for a moment. I'll restate it so that you can make sure and fill in all the blanks and not fail the test that's coming after um, Are there any New Testament promises, commands, or indicatives? Indicatives just means describing the church in a particular way. Are there any promises, commands, or indicatives in the New Testament that would lead believers to expect that the covenant would include their children? Think about that for a moment. That's an astounding question. Extremely important question. Should you, does the Bible give you any warrant to believe that God's grace through Christ is going to flow from you to your children? Or does the, the scripture give you no hope to that? You just kind of pray and hope and, you know, whatever happens, happens. Do we have any warrant for holding up our children and saying, God, save this one and, and trusting his promise towards them? Okay, so... Three, three things, texts, and uh, you can just write these out and we'll think through them together and then I'll, uh, so uh, there are, by the way, thousands of texts that you could choose, choose from to see uh, infant baptism worked out in the scripture. These are just the particular ones that caused me to rethink my position and landed me in the Pado baptism camp, okay? The first uh, you should turn here with me. It's Acts chapter 2, um, verse 30, uh, 39. So turn with me to, to Acts chapter 2. Now, let me, let me give you the context here. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And just now at the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon his apostles. They're speaking in tongues, demonstrating that this is the, um, that this is the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the manifestation of the kingdom of God among the Israelites. Now think about this. You have all of the most faithful Jewish people in the world at the time right here. These are not nominal Jewish people. They've been, we're told explicitly, they were from all over the place. They were the diaspora. And that because this is one of the, um, what's called the... Um, the feasts where they where they enjoy a pilgrimage. They're supposed to go up to Jerusalem. Here we are in Jerusalem, and all of these people, centuries after it's been commanded, they're keeping God's word, and they're coming up to Jerusalem to worship. And Peter tells them in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God 
has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Devastating news. Guys, the entirety of the Old Testament was building up to this one man, the son of David, named Jesus, and you crucified him. It's devastating. The hopes of Israel, y'all are here in the hope of God's future grace. And when he showed up, he crucified him. Now watch, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. By the way, baptism is not for the forgiveness of your sins in terms of cause and effect. Be baptized so that you may have your sins forgiven. It's just the opposite. Be baptized because your sins have been forgiven in this context. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look in verse 39. For the promise is for you. Do you see a period there? What comes next? The promise is for you, and you tell me what's the next phrase. And for your children. Think about this for half a moment, brothers and sisters. You've got faithful Jewish believers that have come up to worship. Jewish believers that for the entirety of their, uh, of their self-conception, historically, every time a male child was born into the family, they gave him the sign of the covenant, and he was to participate, he and she, all of their infants were to participate from cradle to the grave in all of the worship services, in all of the meals, the Passover meal, everything. Their kids were there. Their kids were there with them. Because they understood their children as being part of the covenant that God had given. Now, when these men hear that Christ will forgive them and that they need to be baptized, and Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children, how could they possibly have understood anything but that this is a continuation of the Old Testament promises, which, as we read twice today by God's providence, is extended by promise to, to a thousand generations of those who fear God and who love his name. How would they have understood this? To think that they would have said, look, the promise is for me and it kind of stops with me and maybe my kids are included, maybe they're not, is unthinkable. They would have understood Peter saying the promise is for you and for your children as just that. This new covenant promise in Christ is for my kids in some kind of a way. Okay. Um, second text that's extremely important. 1 Corinthians 7. By the way, I, I've, I've already told you there are more texts than these, but these are the ones that helped me to see uh, what, I, what I could not see before. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in uh, verse 12. Now the context here is really important. You have a bunch of uh, Gentile believers in Corinth. And when the gospel came through and Paul preached, as you can imagine, there are a lot of married couples there. And sometimes, see if this is your history, sometimes a husband picks up on some, some things quicker than his wife. And sometimes a wife picks up on things quicker than her husband. And so in this context, they've written to Paul, some of the believers have written to Paul saying, when we heard the gospel, I got born again, but my husband didn't. I got born again, but my wife didn't. Should we go 
like to Ezra and Nehemiah and say, it's not okay for me to be married to an unbeliever. I've got to divorce them. Is that what we should do? Paul is going to answer that question right here in these verses in verse 12. And he says some amazing things. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, meaning he's not quoting Jesus from the Gospels. That if, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. By the way, if you put this in, if you rip it out of its context, you could make an argument that it's okay to go marry an unbeliever. But that's not what he's talking about. He tells very specifically, do not be unequally yoked. If you're, if you're a single believer, don't think that you should go marry an unbeliever. Do not do that. But if you were married as lost people and one of you has been converted, don't seek a divorce. That's, that's the logic. Well, why, Paul? Why is that your logic? Verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. So think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. This is a, uh, this is a Pharisee of, like, of epic proportions whose entire worldview from the Old Testament has to do with this distinction between uh, covenant member and non-covenant member, uh, common and holy, clean and unclean. It's this bifurcation of everything that comes to us from the, from the Old Testament, right? From the Old Testament covenant. And he's speaking the same kind of language about believing and unbelieving spouses, that an unbelieving spouse is sanctified, is set apart for, um, for special use, that is, it's not a, they're not a common thing anymore. Now, does he mean that they're saved? Like that this is the second way that you can be saved is you can be married to a converted person and now you're going to receive the grace of Christ? No, that's not, what he's, that's not what he's meaning. But he is saying that there's a, there's a special grace that God is extending towards these people that they're no longer common. They've been made holy. That is, they're benefiting from the covenant of Christ in some way in their life. Now listen to what he says next. They've been made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Okay? So the principle that Paul is, is driving at here, again, from a Jewish background, now in the, in the completed new covenant... He's saying, your children are the children of the covenant. They are not common. They're holy. They're sanctified. They're set apart for a special use. And they are, Paul views them as, in some measure, participants in the covenant. Does he believe that they're saved or that they don't need to trust in Christ? They don't need to be born again? Obviously not. But he does believe that they have some sort of special place in the covenant of God, okay. Um, let, let me uh, let me see if I can illustrate this. In the Old Testament, it is statistically proven that more Jewish kids grew up to believe in Yahweh than than, than uh, Philistine kids did. Now why? Why would more Jewish kids grow up to place their faith in Yahweh? Why would more Jewish kids do that than Philistine kids? Why is it why is it overwhelming majority of Jewish kids? Well, because they were raised in the covenant 
to believe in that God. And these guys were raised outside of that covenant to believe in whatever it is that the Philistines wanted to believe in. And so Paul is assuming that, that Christian parents are going to view their kids as in some measure participating in the covenant and that they're going to raise them up in the covenant so that they might believe. Okay? Speaking of raising your kids up in the covenant, turn to Ephesians 6. I know we're going fast through these things. All of them should be an entire sermon. But again, my point is not to try and convince you, but just to get you to think more about what these things mean um, and, and reconsider them by the word of God. So you're in Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to this in verse 1. Paul tells the Ephesian church, which is made up of Gentile and Jew, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So if you count yourself a child, if you're an unmarried person, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes one of the, one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Think about what's just happened. Paul, a Jewish man, is commanding a, uh, a Gentile audience to keep Jewish commands and extending to them Jewish promises. If you'll obey your, uh, your, obey your parents, it'll go well with you that you will live long in the land. And he expects them to, to see themselves as recipients of these things. Now, watch in verse 4. It's an amazing statement. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, I want you to see that there's a but in this sentence. He's not giving two unrelated commands. Fathers don't make your children angry, period. And fathers bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you see the contrast there? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, comma, but, and that's in Greek, it's Allah, it's, it's, the, um, it's a heightened sense of contrast. Whatever's going to follow is in stark contrast to what just was said. So don't provoke them to anger, but rather bring them up. Okay, nourish them, raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, if you were an Ephesian um, believer and you heard Paul uh, use this word for discipline, it's, it's the Greek word paideia, you would have been uh, tracking 100% with what he is talking about here. Uh, the Greek concept of a paideia is, is, comes from um, ancient Athens, where they viewed all of their children as citizens of Athens. And so the paideia is this entire life instruction. It had to do with like teaching them to think. It had to do with teaching them to fight. It had to do with shaping their loves and their loyalties so that at the, when they became adults, that they would become effective, good citizens in Athens. You're training them up from the cradle to the grave to be loyal and effective Athenians. That's what's called the paideia. It's not just thinking, it's not just exercise, it's combat, it's politics, it's absolutely everything. You're raising them up in Athens to be Athenians. And he says, Paul takes that same concept and he says, train them up in the paideia of the Lord. That, that you're training your children up to be participants in the citizenry of God in the new covenant community. So it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. So these texts, I think, give us warrant to say with Joshua, 
Like as a New Testament believer who, who only holds to credo baptism, I would have to say, I would have to change Joshua's uh, most famous words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we got to cut out part of that, don't we? And we have to say, just as for me, I will serve the Lord. I don't know what my house is going to do. I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. We don't know. This text gives us, I think, biblical warrant, this text and others, to say along with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The last text I want to look at uh, with you. Turn to, turn to Exodus 34. Aaron read it to you. Um, you know, uh, you, you should be familiar with this text. It's where um, Moses has asked the Lord. He says, uh, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I'll put you in the rock and I'll lay my hand over you. And I'll pass by and you can see the effects of my passing, but no one will see my face and live. And so the Lord puts him... Uh, in, in verse 5, uh, Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, that God himself, Yahweh himself, is preaching Yahweh. It's the greatest sermon ever given. God is going to preach. This is what I'm like. And listen to verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God be praised for every attribute, mercy, grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we all, as personal recipients of his character, say yes and amen. But God, what about my kids? Do they get included in this? Verse 7. He says, it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, which I think is just an absolute lame sauce translation. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. It should be rendered. Keeping steadfast love. That's the chesed of God. The covenant keeping steadfast love of God. God says, I will keep it to a thousand generations. That's what the text says. How would a Jewish mind have understood this? That my kids, that God is going to keep covenant, steadfast love to my children, to a thousand generations. Um, it's an amazing statement. And, and he goes on to say about revisiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons to the third and fourth generation. Meaning his judgment is short. His mercy and covenant is to a thousand generations. And so I found myself as a credo Baptist, right, looking at this text. Let, let me just ask you, Christian, do you want, like, can you see any sort of goodness and beauty to God's, all of his covenant love being, being extended to your family, giving you biblical warrant to trust that it's going to be extended to your kids? Or would you say it's better that, no, it's just extended to me and maybe it'll be extended to my kids or not. It all depends on if they, if they trust. Well, I can say as a father, I, and, and this is where I've been for seven years, I've wanted to believe this. It's more beautiful to me. But I just couldn't see it in the scripture until recently. But listen, God forbid that we who are recipients of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ... That we should look to the Old Testament and be envious of their promises. 
No, the Old Testament promises, every last one of them, find their yes and their amen in Christ. These are ours to believe and to trust and to trust God for. Okay? So, tons of other texts, but we uh, will move on from there. So, these texts give me, you may not see it yet, and that's okay, but they give me ample warrant to believe, like Old Testament saints, that God's covenant can be applied to children of believers in the hope and the expectation that he will use them as a means to bestow regenerating faith on my children. Okay, I'll move through this last part really quick. Patterns. Let me just show you some patterns in the scripture that would lead us to these things. The first and most important is the circumcision of Abraham. So you can write Abraham in that blank. When was Abraham a recipient of the sign of the covenant of circumcision? Was it before he believed in Christ or was it after? And all God's people said after. It's one of the most... Paul's entire logic in the book of Romans is, is to show us that Abraham was justified by faith alone before circumcision came. So he received... Uh, justification by God and afterward was circumcised. And all the, the credo Baptists say, see, there's your biblical word for believer's baptism. To which I would say, yes, for a first generation believer. But what did Abraham do with Isaac? Did he wait for Isaac to as well grow up and place his faith in God? No, he did not. He circumcised him as an infant as part of the covenant, and he raised him up as part of the covenant. So that's our that's our pattern. Abraham and Isaac, you have first generation that was circumcised upon belief, or after belief, and you have the second generation that was that received the sign of the covenant at eight days old. Okay? So that's the that's the pattern that we would see the New Testament uh, believers using in the second generation. Secondly, um, think about one of the most odd stories in your Bible. God shows up to Moses, sends him into, uh, into Egypt to rescue his people. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses, after hemming and hawing and trying to get out of it and saying what a, what a loud he is, finally he decides to go. And so he's on his way and God meets him, does he not? On his way, like Moses is obeying God, going to Egypt to rescue God's people. And God meets him, the text says, to kill him. We say, what in the world? Why, God, you just, you just sent him to do a job, and he's going finally. Why are you going to kill him? Strange text, but Zipporah comes, his wife, and she circumcises their sons and throws their foreskin at Moses' feet and says, probably not as like a, a loving thing, she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What does that text mean? Well, it probably means a lot more than this, but it certainly, we can, we can know from that, that Moses had not placed his sons under the sign of the covenant. He was not raising them up in the covenant. They weren't circumcised. Probably because, and I think the text bears that out, probably because Zipporah, a Midianite, said, you're not doing that to my boys. Not going to happen. And so Moses has withheld the sign of the covenant from his sons, and now he's going to go rescue God's covenant people, and God says, absolutely not. Not until you put your sons into the covenant and let them be recipients of the sign of the covenant. So that's, again, I think a biblical warrant, unless, unless things are explicitly forbidden in the New Testament, that's biblical warrant for us to say that there is 
biblical justification for immediately putting our kids into the covenant and letting them be recipients of the side of the covenant. Third, think about, right, God works this massive work of, uh, uh, in the Exodus where he, where he goes through all of the plagues and then finally the Passover, which, by the way, Jesus recapitulates that. He does all of the same things in his life and his, uh, his ministry. That he does the exact same things. He's the new and better Passover lamb. Well, the New Testament speaks of them passing through the Red Sea as a baptism into Moses. So think about this. God has worked a universal redemption in, in, for Israel. He's, uh, he's humbled their enemies. He has redeemed them. And now they're standing on the, on the shores of the Red Sea. Mountains on either side. Enemies behind. And God makes a way. And there, the New Testament speaks of them going through as a baptism into Moses. How many of those kids or those parents who were, you, you, can, you can know for certain there were some infant babies there. How many of those parents said, well, i got to leave my kid here until they grow up to believe. I'm not going to take them through the water unless they believe. Would anybody pause for any bit of time and ask God if that's what he would have? What did those mothers do? They pressed those infants to their breasts and they ran through the way that God had made. They took them through the waters. And the text says that it was in that that they were identified globally as the people of God. Now, were there unbelievers in that group? Assuredly so. But they participated in the signs of the covenant. Circumcision, baptism, uh, the, the manna in the wilderness, all of those things they were all partakers of. Whether they believed or whether they didn't, they were part of the visible covenant. Lastly, as far as patterns, this Old Testament feast. This is a central aspect of when Israel would gather and do the, uh, the Lord's Supper counterpart in the Old Testament. When they would celebrate the Passover meal, which was the meal in which Jesus took and said, Now do this in remembrance of me. You were remembering the Exodus. Now I want you to remember me, my broken body, my shed blood. That in the Old Testament, it's very plain, it's repeated a lot, that there was supposed to be a catechizing of the children at the table. So we didn't, we didn't say, uh, do you believe in God or do you not? Are you, are you messing around here? Do you, are you one of us? Do you believe? We're treating you like an outsider? No, you come to the table. And what are the kids expected to do? They're supposed to say, hey, Dad, what does this mean? What are the bitter fruits and the, or the, the bitter herbs and the, and the salt water? What does that mean? Well, it means that we were, our fathers were enslaved and, and, uh, and they wept to the Lord and God delivered them. So there's this inclusion in the covenant signs and feasts and the covenant community. And these things ought to inform how we think about our children. Again, Paul said, don't exasperate or cause your children to be angry, but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Think about before Judah was baptized, every single Sunday, every single Sunday that I can remember, he's reaching for Lord's Supper. And while I'm saying, hey, pray with us, Judah, sing with us, Judah, worship with us, Judah, come into the covenant community and, and, and be a part. Listen to God's word being preached, Judah. But these things, no, not for you. I'm treating him like an outsider. And I'm watching the frustration on his face. Why can I not do that? I want, this is what Christians do. I want to do it. And as a wise dad, I'm coming and saying, no, you can't do that. 
I think I'm. I, I think I've been wrong. I think I've been wrong. Okay. Principles, and I'm done. Four things. One, the principle of reformation. Okay. Uh, happy Reformation Sunday, by the way, where we celebrate uh, the courageous Lutheran uh, Augustinian monk who nailed 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, and turned the world upside down by taking all of the views of the church at the time and bringing them into submission to the, to the teachings of the Old and New Testament. Now, uh, I, I mentioned a debate that I watched not too long ago, and John MacArthur came, the very first thing he said is, and I, and I spent 40 years of my life thinking the same thing. It's like, man, the, the reformers took every doctrine, every thought captive to the to the obedience to Christ. They examined everything by the word of God, but they missed this one. They just, I, and he said, I wish they would complete the reformation by doing away with this, what he called a, a, a Roman Catholic idea of, uh, of infant baptism. Now think about what an arrogant statement that is. For sure, there are wise men and women who have studied these things and who find themselves committed to the credo about disposition. And so, like, I'm not going to throw shade or shame on anybody there. But I would ask for the same grace to be extended to men like Martin Luther, who brought everything and reexamined everything according to Scripture. And it's not like he just took this from the Roman Catholic Church and said, I think we ought to keep doing it. He saw it in the text of Scripture. As did Calvin and Zwingli and Bootser and Knox and every reformer that mattered held to this view. Please don't think that they did that just because it's, a, it's the last carryover from the Roman Catholic Church. No, no. They studied their scripture and they examined everything by it. And this is where they landed. And they landed here so staunchly that they were willing to break fellowship with those who didn't see it this way. They were convinced of this view. So that's Reformation. Principles like, hey, just understand. A lot of wise men have found themselves in this camp. Secondly, um, somebody asked me the other day, about a dear brother in the Lord. He said, uh, and he was he's not a paedo-baptist, but he was just asking me, hey, do you discipline your sons and your daughters as believers or as not believers? We, when, we, when we have to spank our children, we do spank our children often because they're rebels. We take them into the pantry, close the door so they're not getting shamed, and we talk to them. Hey, look, this is what you did. You get, you get spanked in our home for, for um, disobedience, for disrespect, and for dishonesty. Those three things. If you do any of those things, you're going to get a spanking. And we don't threaten them and say, you're the worst, and shame them. You know what we say? Hey, bud, you're a martyr. We love Jesus. We don't do that. We don't, we don't act this way towards our mother. And so they asked me that question. I realized I've been disciplining my children as though they're in the covenant all my life. Let me ask you this, parents. Do you, when you have a new uh, baby born, do you go ahead and bestow your last name on them? Understanding that they might grow to bring shame on your last name? Do you go ahead and give it to him, or do you say, I'm going to wait and see if you bear the fruits of a martyr man or a martyr woman? No, you say, your name is Elijah Dane Martin. That's the best thing I can give you is my name. And then I'm going to train you up to be a good martyr, to know what it means to be loyal to Christ. So we, we discipline our children as though they are believers. Thirdly, maybe most importantly, is worship. 
Do we preach to our kids? Do we teach our kids? Do we pray with little kids as though they are in the family or out of the family? When we have family prayer time, Lydia gets a prayer card. And she prays for you people. And sometimes we have to remind her who you are. And God knows what she's saying when she's walking around. But she says amen and, and sees herself as participating in family devotions. Now, we expect her to grow and sharpen those things. But you'll see her on, uh, on normal occasion as the people of God stand to, to sing and to pray. She will raise her hands and she will mumble right along with, her, with us. And we look at those things and say, beautiful, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. But when we come to baptism and Lord's Supper, we say, nope. The most, some of the most intimate things that Christians get to do to come to the Lord's table, to, to have the Lord's name placed upon us and saturate us, to be placed in the new covenant, we withhold from our children. And I think that's a problem. If we pray over our children that they would never know a day where they didn't love and trust in Jesus, why would we deny them any of the means of God's grace to make that so? We should. Lastly, if it's true, and it is true, that the perseverance of the saints is dependent upon the exercise of the means of grace. That's your fourth blank, is the means of grace. Um, I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. That is not a possibility. If the Spirit of God has raised you from the dead and placed and, and, and caused you to live with Christ, as Aaron was reading from Ephesians 2, raised us up from our uh, deadness and sin, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, given us the Holy Spirit of promise, guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, that can't go away. Because you didn't do anything to earn it, you can't do anything to lose it. And it's also true that if you are to persevere in your faith, you have to do it according to the means of God's grace. If you quit reading your Bible, if you quit, quit praying, if you quit gathering with the body of Christ, if you quit celebrating Lord's Supper, those things are going to have meaning in your life. This is the means of God's grace. Okay, And so if that's true... If we're trusting that God would use the means of his grace to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ and to sustain us in the faith, why would we think that the Spirit would not use these things to bring about the conversion of our children? Why would we think that? So, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray over these things and then to participate next Sunday in Lydia's baptism. Here's what I mean by participate. Next Sunday, I think it's going to look something like this. One of the elders or all of the elders are going to ask Gracie and I some questions about what we believe about baptism, about what we're doing here. We're going to answer them all. And then they're going to ask you as her family in Christ. Will you support her in the faith? Will you hold her accountable for walking faithfully to Christ? So we're going to ask you a series of questions. And those who feel comfortable, we would love for you to respond, yes, we will. God be praised. Amen. We're, we're in. Now, if you can't do that, that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't mean you shouldn't come next Sunday, um, nor does it mean you should say amen when you don't mean it. You can just watch. Um, but for those who are convinced of these things, I would love for you to, to think, those who are willing to, to pray over these things, think about them and consider 
participating. Because next Sunday I would like to put her under the name of our covenant-keeping God. Our God who swore to keep his chesed to a thousand generations of those who fear him. And that would include Lydia. And I would like you all to participate with me. So would you please think about these things and pray and seek the Lord as to whether or not in your house you can participate with us next Sunday. All right. Um, speaking of means of grace, this table is one of the most powerful means by which the Lord causes us to persevere in the faith. Much like manna in the wilderness, it's a weekly reminder that Jesus came to save us from our sin and has actually done it by his broken body and his shed blood. If you feel too sinful to come to the table, listen to me. If you feel too sinful to come to the table, then you need to understand that that's like a person saying, I'm just too dirty to take a shower. It doesn't work that way. That's what a shower is for. That's what a shower is for. Would you be clean? Would you be glad in the redemption that Christ has provided? Then by all means, come to the Lord's table and eat as a son or a daughter. In the Old Testament, King David sought out a man named Mephibosheth. Don't name your kid Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, not only is it hard to say, it means dying man of shame. That's what it means. David sought out a man named Mephibosheth who came from a place called Lodabar, which means no place and no thing. He's a, a dying man of shame from nowhere. That's what the text reads. And even worse, when he was young, he had an accident. He was lame in both of his feet. He had nothing in himself that would merit David's kindness or favor. As a matter of fact, not only did he have nothing in himself that would elicit kindness from David, he was the only surviving heir of the rival kingdom of Saul's line. David should have had him killed. But instead, because of the great love with which David loved his best friend Jonathan, he sought out Mephibosheth as a family member of Jonathan's house, rival king under Saul, but as a, but as a, uh, a member of Jonathan's house, David sought out Mephibosheth so that he might show the Lord's loving kindness to him. And do you know what the key grace that David extended to Mephibosheth was? The very greatest honor he bestowed upon him? Invitation to eat at the king's table like a son. No longer an enemy. So we say it every Sunday, and we mean it every Sunday. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Do you hear me say that every Sunday? I'm not just throwing out words. I mean it. You are welcome to this table. Therefore, come and once again welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for being a better David who seeks out uh, worse enemies than Mephibosheth to bestow kindness on us, covenant-keeping kindness. Father, it is, it is your love for your son, Jesus Christ, that, that includes us in this blessing to be able to come to your table and to remember the redemption that you provided for us when you sent your son. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would minister to us, 
I pray especially for those of us, Lord, who struggle with how sinful we have been. Um, let that not keep us from the table because you intend for sinners to come and to find mercy here. So give us boldness uh, to believe you and to take you at your word. Would you, would you minister to us now in Jesus' name? Amen.